Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Zach, Chad, and Mavin to discuss the topics of AI and the effects in the modern day world. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Zach, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I kind of started my career at a quantum computing company called D-Wave Systems. And it was there that I was working on the applications of um, AI to drug discovery. And so uh, fast forward about a year later, me and uh, who is now my CTO in collaboration with my old advisor had worked on a project doing generative AI for drug discovery. And with the really strong results of that project and some novel modifications on top of it, uh, we were motivated to start a, a co-found a company called this called Variational AI, which is what we're doing now. Um, so yeah, at Variational AI, co-founder, I'm a co-founder and machine learning research scientist, and we are working on helping pharmaceutical companies produce drugs for very challenging uh, indications or target product profiles. That's great. Thanks, Zach. And Chad? Yeah, I'm Chad Sanderson. I am the CEO of a data infrastructure startup called Gable.ai. We focus on connecting the producers of data with the consumers of data in CICD. Uh, prior to that, I was the leader of the data platform team at a late stage freight technology startup called Convoy. And before that, I was a tech lead on the AI platform team at Microsoft. I've got um, over a decade of experience in, in data and in data infrastructure. And I'm sort of most focused on the, the infrastructure side of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, how do we make, we make sure we're getting good data to data scientists and uh, machine learning engineers to build models? Great, thanks, Chad. And finally, Marvin. Hi, um, happy to. Um, so my, my name is Marvin Gopalsami. I'm a director of machine learning at Signify, formerly known as Philips Leiden. I've been with uh, Philips slash Signify for about 12 years. Uh, by training, I have computer science uh, degree and focusing primarily on algorithms uh, throughout my career. Uh, my currently I lead a team that develops uh, machine learning AI algorithms for Signify internal applications, and some of the applications are facing the customers as well. Uh, my current areas of interest include language models uh, and generative AI models such as text to images and so. So I'm happy to be part of this podcast episode. That's great. Thanks, guys. So now we've got that established, um, let's move on to the topic in focus. So you've all got questions or statements within the AI space prepared. So let's get started. So Zach, we're going to kick off with you. And um, I believe your first topic was AI business models in general and in drug discovery. So do you want to kick us off? Sure. Great. Yeah. I, I just thought this would be an interesting topic to discuss because they're rapidly evolving, changing, and new things are being added. Um, so I guess I'll just start, you know, with the general overview, I guess, previously, I think the AI applications were more very specific to the discipline that was being worked on. So uh, you have companies like C3AI and Palantir, and they'd work on solving specific problems in AI. And that could be something like, oh, let's train a discriminative model in order to predict some quantity of interest that the customer is interested in using, or for instance, targeted ads for consumers. So this has been, this has changed a lot um, with the advent of things like large language models, where instead of having specific applications with like specific algorithms, we now have um, one algorithm that sort of does everything. It's, it's like, it's described as a co-pilot you essentially have access to what would be an assistant, um, which maybe knows a lot in general about the world or has some specific knowledge about the topic you're interested in and can help you essentially focus your due diligence. Your Instead of search, which with Google is like kind of having a librarian pull out a bunch of books for you, this is sort of much more focused. It's more like having a study buddy who already knows a lot about the subject or a tutor, for instance. Um, and so, yeah, I think that has a completely different business model. Of course, there's the straight-to-consumer business models, um, applications for generative AI, large language models. There's also uh, specific applications to businesses um, in specializing 
that are more specialized, like uh, HR applications, training people, things like that. Um, so my expertise isn't really in the general industry. It's more specific to my industry, which is in pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceuticals, the applications or the business models, sorry, are kind of threefold. Um, the idea in general, or so the, one of the most popular business models is to just essentially be a drug company. You're not really, your main product isn't the AI. The AI is sort of the tool that you use and enhance in order to make drugs. The idea is if you have the golden goose, um, why sell the goose? Just make the eggs and, you know, sell them. So, so that's what a lot of companies are doing. The issue with that is that it pulls all the risk onto yourself. So even if, you know, your algorithm is really great and maybe you have most of the properties you thought should work and, and they work, but potentially you've gone and targeted something in biology that doesn't have good precedent for being targeted. And so maybe you fail in clinical trials because of that. So the outcomes are very binary and the reward is very much down the line. And so you put on a lot of risk onto your company. Uh, another very popular business model is to sell software. So essentially you build this like AI enhanced or enabled drug discovery software and you sell software licenses. The, a few issues with that, um, one is that the people using those softwares have to be essentially specialists in those softwares. They're very specific. The way you interact with them is very specific. And the people who become specialists in their softwares really have to spend, like have to both be technical enough to use the software, but maybe, um, you know, may not have a, all the other technical skills. So they, they may end up getting too specialized towards the software. Anyway, so, so you need these people who are very specialized in the software. Um, and when you when you do that, and when the software is popular enough, it can work. It's just that many of these companies are also saturating the market. So there's a, a limited number of pharmaceutical companies out there. That space isn't hugely growing. I mean, the market cap is large, but um, there are companies like Schrodinger who offer these sorts of softwares, and they basically saturated their market. So they become drug discovery companies to try and continue growing. And then there's kind of like this third model, which is sort of what our company is is testing the waters on. And this is kind of like a molecules as a service model, where a company would, a pharmaceutical company would come to us and, and tell us what their target product profile is. Or maybe they tell us through like an, an internet web form or something like that. They just submit something and it's very hands-off. We send them some number of molecules back for some dollar amount. And um, when we do that, that's very easily scalable because we have a fully automated pipeline to handle that. So we end up, yeah, there's not, the pharmaceutical company doesn't have to have people specialized in using our software. We use our own software. We sort of just take as input this set of requirements that they need. Um, so the back end of, of our AI algorithms are all generative based. And so it's kind of like asking ChatGPT to tell you about a certain thing. You give this model a set of desiderata for your drug of interest. And then the model will output some drug candidates that the company should try and test. Yeah. So after this is sent to the pharmaceutical company, they can choose to license it or so forth. And that's kind of the model we're working with. Um, this is not a popular model. It's something that hasn't been really explored that well. I think that's just, I don't really think there's a really great reason for that. Maybe other than it was really hard to automate these things before AI and AI, like the modern generative AI helps with that. But yeah, that's kind of the gist of what I wanted to say about business models and AI and, and for pharmaceuticals. Yeah, great. Thank you. Some really interesting points. And Chad, did you have something to add to that? Um, less to add and, and more of a question for Zach. This is not my uh, area of, of expertise as I focus primarily on infrastructure. Um, but something that I've been wondering, especially given the big open AI announcement and their marketplace um, um, a, a few days ago, um, how do you, like what do you see as the competitive advantage for these gen AI companies? Like which of those three categories do you think that um, a a new startup who is building gen a gen AI today can carve out their niche in versus mm -hmm. just 
massively swallowed by OpenAI, or there's just so much competition because there's really no competitive advantage to what you're building. Yeah, um, I can answer that question, but I just also want to add some clarification. I work in very early stage drug discovery, so there are all different parts along the drug discovery pipeline that you could apply AI to. So some people apply it to patient selection, for instance, for clinical trials, but we apply it to early stage drug discovery. So, um, you know, in, in the scope of early stage drug discovery, these sorts of open, the models that AI, oh, pardon me, that OpenAI offers um, don't have the ability to address those problems because they're really, they're really specialized. It's kind of, um, it, it would be much more to expect, it would be challenging to, uh, for, for one of these GPT models to do what, what we're doing because it's just, the setup is very different. Essentially, we're learning from data sets of pairs of molecules and properties, whereas, you know, GPTs are learning from text. And so molecules are graphs. There's a certain structure that's used for representation learning there. And that's not really taken into account at all by a GPT. And we have like these long, large sort of tabular data sets almost where we learn relationships between molecules and their properties. So in terms of business models, I'd recommend for new companies getting into this. Yeah, if you have, in general, I'd say if you have an algorithm that you know works really well and you have I guess, an indication like uh, a certain disease that you want to go after that maybe you have some novel idea for how the biology works that you can leverage, then you can bring that in-house and just develop the drug in-house. Um, and I say, I think the key here is kind of really understanding the biology because you're sort of, you're facing the problem of should I make a best-in-class drug or a first-in-class drug? Best-in-class, you're sort of trying to compete with what exists. And that for that, it's really hard to do because all of the um, all of the uh, easy pickings have already been taken uh, for the first in class. It's much harder. So if you know something special, proprietary, then your business model could be let's be a biotech. Uh, if you don't, it's kind of like in our position, we're not biologists, we're machine learning people with a little bit of chemistry and cheminformatics. Um, we really are maybe a bit with a bit of a bias, but uh, um, bias towards doing this molecule, having molecules as a service. And that's just because it scales really well. It competes with other services from CROs, which are like contract research organizations, which you can pay to go and help find you a, a, like a, a drug candidate in the way we do, except it costs significantly more money to do it that way. So... I think, yeah, this really has a good chance at bringing down uh, drug development costs significantly with this sort of method. So I think this business model is is quite promising in that way. You know, again, I, I think in, in theory, it still sounds really good. Um, in practice, we'll see what happens. But um, that's that's where I still believe the right business models for AI for drug discovery lie in. Great. Thank you, Zach. Really, really informative. Uh, Madhan, did you have something to add? Yes, uh, Zach, I, great to hear about uh, the, the business models in, in this particular area. Uh, before my company spin off into Signify, we were part of Royal Philips, which was a, a health tech company. I'm slightly aware of uh, you know, pharma and uh, drug-related applications. So my, mm -hmm. my question to you is, um, so this particular application uh, has... Uh, very large potential, right? Uh, if you could go towards personalizing your treatment and therapy uh, for you know, uh, larger audience of people, especially uh, rare diseases and so on, uh, that the market, uh, addressable market is so big, right? But still, uh, there is a reason why uh, big gen AI companies like OpenAI or uh, you know, uh, big pharma companies don't have something substantial on this yet, right? So what what blocks them uh, from from doing that? Is it is it the expertise uh, that they require, uh, or the the chance of success is lower compared to consumer application that OpenAI is going after? Like what what's your assessment on why the the big tech is not jumping on it? Yeah, I think they're definitely trying. Um, 
there's always the issue with big pharma being extremely slow and having these huge bureaucracies. I have family who work in big pharma and just hearing about it makes me want to tear my hair out. It's almost impossible <laughs> to get anything done properly um, unless there's, there's a huge organizational push to do it. Sometimes there is. And I think that for Pfizer, for instance, there has been a large organizational push. Um, there are, there's an interesting divergence between the primary machine learning literature and the drug discovery applied machine learning literature. And I think most of drug, these pharmaceutical companies draw from the applied literature. And that has like a lag time of a few years with the primary machine learning literature. So um, if you're someone who's interested in fundamental machine learning and you know, you're willing to learn a bit of drug discovery uh, related information, then I think that gives you a leg up. The other thing is, I think there's been a few red herrings in AI for drug discovery. And I think that sent um, companies and research groups on sort of distracting tangents that haven't really yielded any fruit. Thanks for that, Zach. Really, really interesting to, to kind of get really specific into into the drug discovery because I think a lot of AI conversations are very broad. So it's it's great to kind of hear it from that point of view. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so let's move on to your your kind of next subtopic, which is uh, data set sizes, model sizes, and how they scale with modern sorry model error. Yeah, so I, I was interested in this part being more of a discussion. It's it's a really interesting topic for me. Um, and I think that it's really important for people doing uh, AI startups uh, so just whoever wants to start an AI company to have a sense of the scales they'll need to achieve to be competitive with like modern large language models. Um, and I saw there was also a topic about um, learning on clean data and maybe we can, I'm not sure who was talking about that, but if we're still talking about that today, I'd, I'd be glad to have this lean into to or flow into that conversation. Um, but yeah, no, I just think that there's been a lot of interesting work done recently trying to understand what the scaling laws are in, for instance, large language models, but other types of um, machine learning as well. And a scaling law meaning that you're trying to figure out the relationship between essentially model error and the size of the model, the amount to compute the model needs, and the size of your data set. And so there's usually a, a good relationship between, you know, of course, it's sort of intuitive. As you increase the data set size and the model size, the model performs better. At some point, if you fix the data set size and continue increasing the model size, there's some diminishing returns. Um, but interestingly, it still seems like having extremely large models continue to, to benefit um practitioners and these models just the size of these models end up building a moat for a company in, in itself because there it can cost like millions of dollars to just train one of these models and in reality like when i'm doing machine learning i'm doing many rounds of hyperparameter tuning and if i were to if it were to cost me like millions of dollars to train a model i'd easily be spending hundreds of millions just because of the amount training and then debugging and just all of that that needs to go into making a model actually work really well. So I just, you know, caution any um, generative AI startup thinking that they can build like better language models that this is just extremely expensive. And if you don't have the backing of these huge like trillion dollar companies, then it's going to be extremely hard to be competitive. So I don't know, I just I thought this was an interesting topic to to discuss if anyone else has some insight towards it. Yes, yeah, so certainly I can add to it, uh, Zach. I think the, the question you threw here um, is, is common for pretty much all industries that are trying to use AI and Gen AI uh, technologies, right? Uh, in, in, in my company, we, we have the same question, like, do, do we really need the largest model here? Like, do, do we really need largest uh, data set here? There are nice papers and developments recently that uh, high quality, smaller uh, sample populations probably uh, good enough compared to very large quantity of training data set and, and very large models. Right? Uh, so it, it all boils down to the, the task that you are solving right? and, and the, the architecture of your model. 
recently we see the, the trend that smaller models are performing as good as very large models on selected tasks, right? So the trend is actually going in reverse. Six months ago, people would have said, hey, the next GPT is going to be, you know, 10 times bigger than the, this GPT. Now people are changing those predictions, saying that maybe you don't have to keep going larger, uh, right? Maybe, maybe the, the problem is solvable with a smaller set of uh, parameters, right? Uh, so, so that trend is happening right now. It has impact on the uh, data too. And six months ago, people thought some of the problems can never be solved by smaller companies. So now, now we're thinking that maybe a custom-built model or custom fine-tuned model are solvable with smaller set of uh, high-quality data, right? So the, the trend is reversing, and that's a very interesting uh, trend to observe. So companies like us, for example, like, like Zach mentioned, developing a foundation model costs you millions of dollars, and we, we are not in the business of selling AI. So it, it certainly is not applicable to us. Uh, but fine-tuning, uh, the cost of fine-tuning, the uh, benefit of fine-tuning uh, uh, certainly uh, outweighs the, the cost of fine-tuning, right? And the cost of building data set for fine-tuning. Great. What Thank you, Martin. Think, yeah. Chad, did you have anything to add to that? Or do you think Marvin summed it up? I think Modern subbed it up quite well, and it's what we've been seeing as well, working with customers who are in the business of attempting to start to leverage these uh, foundation models. It's hard to emphasize just how big of a factor quality uh, actually plays in the predictive uh, capacity of the model. I think most uh, companies that have uh, data available, whether that's structured or unstructured, don't actually realize how low quality um, that that data is, especially if you're collecting it from a public domain or you're collecting it from some API or some vendor that's just, you know, providing you data on a schedule. Um, not only is it low quality from the sense of um, all, all the, the structural um, component where like you might have null records, uh, you might have um, uh, missing values in, in other ways, you might have um, random changes to types uh, just things that require massive amounts of uh, validation before the data is even ready for the model. I, you know, my general yardstick is the more validation that you have to do on the data, the better in indication that it's probably extraordinarily low quality. Um, but also the the underlying semantic meaning of the data in many companies is is just not clear. Um, if you're accessing data from, you know, like a first party. Uh, a first-party database, like uh, you're using something structured like a Postgres or, or MySQL or, or something like that, and you're a data scientist, oftentimes it's it's not exactly clear um, how these fields, uh, what is the business logic um, that's being leveraged to produce this data in the first place. Many times the engineers themselves don't actually know the answer to this, or they left the company uh, many years ago. And so I think a lot of the, I wouldn't say it's a misunderstanding, but I think a lot of the beliefs about what was required in order to train a foundation model was based on a lot of these models initially being trained on on bad data with very poor signal, and therefore you needed much more of that signal to have anything directional. But if the signal is much stronger and the quality is much higher, uh, it seems to be the, the, the case what, what Martin said, is that the, these smaller models are starting to yield um, a lot more value than we initially expected. Great, thank you, Chad. Zach, I know this was this was obviously your topic. So, have you got anything to sort of add to what Mavin and Chad have said, or do you think we've kind of summed that up quite nicely? Yeah, no, it's it's basically summed up. I think that I mean, so our company is also working on you know uh, how how to clean data as well and, and how to train more efficient models based on that cleaner data. And, and yeah, it definitely has an effect. There've been lots of studies showing that noisy data leads to yeah, models are much harder to train on noisy data. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I'm in complete agreement there. I think there's still scaling laws that probably go um, in the way of saying that more parameters are better, even if the data is clean. But I totally agree that if you can decrease the amount of data needed and the amount of number of parameters needed just by using cleaner data, then you absolutely should. And maybe that makes it accessible to a huge range of companies after them. 
Great. Thanks, guys. Well, I think this probably leads us quite nicely into Chad's topic, um, actually, which is data contracts, data quality at scale. So, um, Chad, if you're happy to, to kick us off on that, I'd be, you know, love to love to get your thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Data. Uh, one of the, the big problems, this isn't this isn't just exclusive to um, the foundation models and engine AI, but really every application of um, AI and, and its subsets, uh, machine learning and personalization and all of these things, um, they are ultimately impacted by um, quality across a, a variety of, of different spectrums. Um, some of it might be, uh, like I mentioned uh, in the earlier response, it, it could be the, the semantic um, aspect of, of the data. Um, for instance, what does a single column in this table actually represent? Like there is some real world meaning and understanding that and, and making sure it's clear uh, both to the individuals leveraging the data and the model itself is really important. Um, you, the same applies to, to columns as well. Obviously, um, then you have sort of the, the, the schema of the data and uh, that, that's important as well from a consistency perspective. Um, you know, in many organizations, there's not that much change management when it comes to data. So you can expect stuff to just change um, arbitrarily in, in many cases, depending on what the uh, how that data is being used uh, for applications. Um, if you're coming from a big organization like Microsoft, like I did, or, or, or Convoy, where a lot of the data that we're using in our um, machine learning models is actually the, the source of that data is our uh, transactional databases, which are powering our applications. Um, there's not a great sense of connection or collaboration between the teams who maintain the system of record, the transactional data, and the data used for AI and, uh, and, and ML and, and BI and all the other various um, downstream applications. And this leads to some really unfortunate uh, things happening. Um, I mean, number one is, is uh, is is quality just from uh, quality issues in, in terms of understanding like you know do, do we actually understand um what this data is and and does the model understand if something breaks do we have an outage how frequently are we having uh how frequently are we having these outages and then when changes happen um do do we know about them and can we incorporate that data into our models moving forward so there's sort of a backwards incompatibility component but there's also a forwards compatibility component it's very very common for software engineers to add new columns into their transactional databases and not tell anyone and, and not delete the old data and, and, and not, not refactor it. And that's because it's very dangerous to remove columns if you don't know who all is using them. And so you might have someone leveraging a model that's using some data that's been outdated for the last six months. There's a new version of this in, in production and you just never know about it. So, um, the whole concept of a data contract is not dissimilar from uh, a service contract in the world of, of software engineering. Like you need APIs for things. Um, you, you need interfaces and there, there needs to be producers who take accountability of these interfaces and consumers that are leveraging these interfaces and some level of collaboration uh, between the two of them. And in the same way that APIs naturally evolve and they're version controlled and there's very clear SLAs. There needs to be the same for data. You need SLAs for data. There needs some level of versioning. You need integration testing and unit testing and, and all of these things basically starting to treat our data as, as part of a product. And I think as we lean more and more into generative AI, um, this becomes really, really important. In fact, I, I would say it is essential for scale from the, from the infrastructure and, and technology side of things. That's great. Thank you, Chad. Some really, really interesting points there. And um, Madden, I could I could see you kind of nodding as as Chad was saying, you know, talking about it from a bigger company point of view. Obviously, you're from a from a bigger company. Did that kind of resonate with you? Yeah, certainly. I I, I have a subtopic on on this as well. So, but I can I can use this opportunity to talk about it. Uh, so, similar to what Chad mentioned, uh, data quality is one of the highest uh, biggest challenge. Uh, in, in developing AI applications, right? So a large company like us, we have the habit of recording data, storing data somewhere in the data lake, right? Uh, 
Uh, sometimes people forget about it after recording. They are they are they are stored in a, in, the, in the format the, the developers have created, not not for the format, uh, not thinking about the future use case. Like AI someday will come and you know use this data, right? So translating those old storages, translate translating those old documents into a trainable data set is the biggest challenge we have, right? And when you do that, how do you assure the highest quality? Uh, right. So, so for example, if I translate one of my old conversations into a trainable data set for my AI chatbot, uh, if I make a mistake in, in conversations between an agent and, and, and a customer, uh, I can live with it. But if I make a mistake on what is the conclusion of the conversation, right, whether, whether the customer's query was solved or not, if I make a mistake on that, that's going to give a wrong label for my fine-tuning data set, and that will lead my model to, uh, to an undesirable behavior, right? So, so the process is not only very important, but ensuring high quality of, of this uh, translation from your documents to trainable data set, that's of highest importance uh, to, to me as a, as a machine learning scientist. Great. Thank you, Madam. And Zach, I think you've got something to add there. So is there any automated way of doing this? I mean, it sounds like you just have to have a human check all the data and that just, I'm sure it, it just scales really poorly and is frustrating. So maybe you have some better ways. Well, we, we, we do use automated ways because it's it's humanly impossible to do that ourselves with, with the available people. But again, uh, without a human in the loop, uh, if you can't um, guarantee uh, the, the, the quality of the data, this will Never become a golden data set, right? It, uh, the models are always uh, known to make mistakes, especially when the format is not standard, right? Especially the task that you're 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 defining doesn't have a standard schema, right? If you're translating, let's say, from one language to another language, and the task is very well tightly defined, then the format is very well known. Then yeah, an automated tool or algorithm can do that for you. But in in our case, when you are reading documents, we are talking about documents that were written by different people in different years in different regions they, they come in diff very very different formats right okay so do you have like prophylactic approaches like these data contracts or um do you kind of just check them on the spot yeah we, we go through them in, in batches right so we use models at several stages so there is an early stage model that can scrape these documents and, and prepare it for you and then a human comes in, reviews it, and the second stage model that can actually clean this up a little better. So there is human in the loop, but there's also automation in the loop, but we are not at a stage where uh, automation can can do this uh, uh, you know, fully uh, to, to the, the level of quality that we would like. That's probably the case with many, many of the industries because the documents were generated not for this application, right? And and they were generated different regions, different different segments of the businesses and so on. Do you think we're far off it being fully automated, Mavin? Uh I, I would say well, possibly 70% automated, I would say, uh, right? Okay. But still, uh, there are some nitty-gritty details, like, like I mentioned, uh, we, are, we are a lighting company, world's largest lighting company. And many of our documents uh, do have the lighting lingo that only our lighting specifiers and uh, we, we understand, right? These are not meant for general consumers. Uh, but models don't understand. So model, uh, the, the embedding models uh, have not seen such lingos before, right? So they, they're not great at uh, translating or processing them. So somebody, uh, a system expert from our own uh, uh, company has to step in and say that, yes, this this is the right lingo. This is, this is how we would define and so on, right? So you're, you're talking about some some know-how, uh, some, some industrial experience that are not yet automatable, that are not yet available in these models. Right, so that's where the, the human uh, expert has to come in. But in future, over a period of time, you now when these rounds of cleanup happens, right, so we record them, of course. Uh, right, so over a period of time, you can possibly train a model, uh, but it's unfortunate it's not fully automated at this point. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um. So, Chad, that was that was obviously your your topic. Have you got anything to add after after that discussion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's uh, I think that what Malcolm said is, is is right, and it kind of goes back to one of my initial points around semantics. Like, it's it's really hard to understate the value 
um, and the importance of semantics when we talk about um, producing reliable uh, training data, especially data that is unstructured, um, meaning is unbelievably critical. And most people in a, in a company that have been working there for many years, um, you know, don't have a full understanding of what all of this lingo actually means. Um, data scientists very rarely know the, the full amount of lingo that, say, someone on the business side uses. I worked in the freight space for a very long time. Um, if I'm an ML engineer and I'm responsible for, you know, figuring out which features are, are most meaningful in, in my model, um, I may not necessarily understand the difference between different types of, of freight or how a broker um, defines that freight or how a customer defines that freight or how we go through the RFP process. Um, all, all of these is very, very business and, and industry specific. In order, in order to really leverage the full extent of these foundation models, I think there has to be some connection between the, 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 the business experts um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the data science team. Um, this is in some ways what the catalog was always intended to be used for, the concept of a data catalog um, or a business glossary. So these are relatively old concepts. They go back to the 1980s and they're still somewhat common today. So it's essentially, it's, a, it's an index that sits on top of all of your data. Uh, it scrapes your tables and your columns and your data sources. And then it encourages people to define using human readable language exactly what this data represents. Like what does a single row in this table mean? Um, what are the, 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 the core business objects in, in the company? Um, how do they relate to each other? What is the cardinality? Uh, what is the, the actual human definition of that relationship? Um, and, and, and inscribing all of that um, in, in a glossary. Now, in the past, um, most people haven't been very willing to use these glossaries because there's no incentive, right? If, if I, as a business user, spend, you know, six hours a day going through and, and documenting every single one of my processes, I don't get a gold star or, or, or a bonus or anything like that. Uh, there's nothing really in it for the business, except I might be making this like small esoteric concept uh, more accessible to the one or two or three people who might need to leverage it. But as we start to lean more into Gen AI, these things become unbelievably important to uh, effectively document. And so I think this is in addition to the, the contract, which is the technical mechanism of, a, of ensuring that the, our uh, expectations of the data are met by the source system, there also needs to be some change in, in process uh, where business users that understand what data means and what business processes mean are actively encouraged to document their workflows. And this documentation is used um, to, to power uh, or to provide context to the foundation models. Great, thank you. That was that was great. Thanks, Chad. So um, yeah, I'm gonna gonna move on to to Maven's subtopics now. So kind of touched on this with Zach's actually, but um, I guess Maven's is a little bit more broad. So we're gonna start with building the right data sets. So we talked about like kind of the scalability and the size, but um, Maven, over over to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think we already touched upon this, but um, I think there's probably a broader. Uh, um, uh, how to say uh, broader um, discussion uh, on this, right? So when I say right uh, data set, I mean um, data has data set has to be task specific, right? So my my team currently handles a number of uh, AI projects, and each of them have different different tasks. So so building this task specific data set uh, is is the very first thing that you do, right? Uh, as as you start AI development, uh, but how, how how do you build it? Uh, is uh, is, is the biggest challenge like uh, it involves a lot of labor it's a, it involves a lot of processing hunting for such data samples and, and, and having experts in the loop to to verify the quality and so on right so the sooner you start the better uh, the more high quality samples you have the, the, the better and uh, if the samples come from experts even better right uh, we, have, we have tried uh, you know, piggybacking on top of ChatGPT and other types of model. Hey, you know, here's an example. Generate more such examples, right? 
but the models are very very creative uh, and and they are hallucinating that the samples that they generate uh, do not necessarily uh, represent how uh, the phrases would be used in real life or in, in our own industrial applications right so you can have x number of samples automatically generated but unless a human says that yeah i think it looks realistic uh, uh, those samples are meaningless, right? So somewhere we think there is a hybrid approach that you can use automation, you can use uh, you know large models to generate candidates for you, but still it's a human expert that that uh, uh, finalizes uh, whether the uh, the sample is good for this task uh, specific data set or not, right? Uh, the second point is um, uh, is is being being structured, right? Uh, as as Chad mentioned. The, the most of these machine learning models they follow certain structures so the input output instruction and whatnot but extracting the structure out of your existing document is is the biggest nightmare right most of your documents are not in the structure right uh, so for example we are going after a QA agent right uh, uh, a board that that can answer technical questions now the data sets that we have is a bunch of uh, documents thousands and thousands of uh, documents user manuals they are not written in a question and answer format so you have to extract question and answer from these documents, and only they those samples become trainable data set, right? Not the documents themselves. So this process of extracting the structured uh, uh, data set is is very tedious and then uh, requires certain uh, specialty and quality, high quality. I already mentioned, and finally, free to use, right? If you are getting it from your um, from public sources, if you are getting it from your partners, or if you are getting the data set from your own. A company, you have to make sure that you have the uh, right to use them, that they don't infringe somebody's copyright, right? Uh, uh, highly likely the models will not reproduce them, but there are papers recently where a small uh, portion of the test data uh, researchers have thrown at uh, large language models. Uh, the the out, output of uh, the, the models look exactly the same as uh, the trainable, trainable data set and though those data, data samples had copyright, copyrighted by somebody. So you have to make sure that the data set is free to use for your own application, right? Uh, a company like us, of course, we have plenty of data. Most of the data is internally generated, so you're free to use them. But a company who buy these data from outside or and procure them from a public data set, you have to just make sure that you have the right to use them, right? Uh, otherwise, when you put, put the models into production, you may have some some legal trouble, right? So these are the four aspects I want to talk about when we say you know building the right data set. So being task specific, being uh, having structured data, having high quality data, and finally a data set that that's free to use. Great, thank you, um, Chad, Zach. Have either of you got anything to add to that, or that sure? I, I was just wondering uh, how much you can use generative AI to help you build those data sets. It's kind of like a, in a meta usage do you have generative ai maybe help summarize or extract the the question answer pairs or whatever you're looking to extract from text to do stuff like that of, of course yeah we, we do uh, use use these models to generate uh, we don't we don't read these thousands and thousands of documents ourselves and generate the q and a so we use models but but there's a human in the loop to say uh, whether whether the, uh, the question answer is practical relevant uh, and useful right uh, we also use models to say whether, whether the question is coherent and the answer is consistent and whatnot. But there's still a human at the end of the loop uh, that, that says that, yes, this sample is qualified for my training data set. Right? Uh, but again, um, six months ago when we started this, uh, ChatGPT did not provide private <laughs> uh, options. So whatever we throw at uh, in our large APIs, uh, large language model APIs, uh, it stays with them. So we were uh, not allowed to use such APIs because some of these documents are sensitive and the question answers that we are developing are sensitive. So we are at the mercy of uh, locally hosted open source model uh, models that are private. But nowadays we are seeing that uh, these companies are starting to provide uh, corporate uh, version of uh, language models. So we, we, in going forward, we can possibly use large models uh, that are capable of cleaning up data for us and, and generating these samples for us. Great, thank you. And Chad, what did you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, um, seems like the, the team is honestly pretty cutting edge at, as the uh, for the application of some of these models and also for the usage of third-party data sets. 
Um, what have been some of the things that you've learned around the access of third-party data and uh, what are the signals um, when it comes to whether or not you actually have uh, permission to, to leverage uh, that data and, and not get a copyright violation? Seems like maybe there's some battle scars there from that. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I belong to innovation uh, group, so I'm, I'm a researcher. So it's, for me, most of these models allow you to research and work on these models, but not go, go to production, right? Uh, be, be commercial about it. So, uh, you know, those things come, come later in my mind. Uh, so I want to first focus on my experiments. But when it comes to businesses, uh, uh, naturally, uh, the hesitation comes in. If, uh, if a model that we use or if the data set that we use uh, is known to have copyrighted information, then the businesses will hesitate taking them to production, right? Uh, because in future, if there is a litigation, you know, how do you handle it? The model creators are uh, the data set creators may not be able to help you, right? And that's where I think uh, the, the recent announcement from uh, uh, ChatGPT, uh, uh, OpenAI, that there is a, a sheet that they are providing with some of the models, right? Uh, if you were to use their APIs and if there is a litigation in future, uh, they would like to defend you, right? So that's now ringing bells and people are saying, hey, that, that sounds like a good deal, right? Uh, so we need such things also for open source model, right? Uh, this morning, in fact, I had a discussion that stable diffusion is trained on publicly scraped images, and many of those images have copyrights. So there's an ongoing litigation uh, that uh, anybody using stable diffusion uh, may may become uh, uh, maybe challenged in future. So companies will definitely hesitate before uh, you know, bringing them to production. Right, so that's why I highlight the the, the fact that the free to use uh, is, is one of the most important aspect, right? Uh, if you're if you're talking about a commercial application, that's great. Thank you, Madan. I think that that answered it really well. Um, some really interesting points there. Um, so I'm gonna gonna move on to some more of your your other topics. So something that I'm really interested in as well um, is the topic of buy-in versus building AI models. And I think this is probably a topic that we could, well, it could probably be its own podcast. It's quite a big topic um, and one I'm sure that everybody will be keen to get stuck into. So, Madam, why don't you kick us off and, and we can kind of kick the discussion off from there. Sure, yeah. I think this is probably the first question every every company gets, right? If you're not in the business of Gen AI, you, you will be asking, okay, should I use ChatGPT APIs or should I build something on my own? using uh, open source models right uh, so that's a very constant question so uh, as, as a researcher the way i would frame this question is like you know, probably sequence of questions right so what is your use case uh, it's all boils down to that right what what is your use case right what what is the task that you're you're talking about right who are your users and, and what do you care more about uh, the, the use case right the answers to these questions will help you to decide whether you need a, a, a commercial um, uh, API or can you build something on your own using open source or can you fine-tune something, uh, a, a model that is also available in open source, right? So it all starts with the, the use case, right? So the use case does not give you uh, an opportunity to monetize, for example, then going for paid APIs will actually not be practical, right? So let's say if you're talking about internal productivity-related use cases where you cannot estimate what the gain exactly is, so then you can't pay one cent or four cent per API calls, right? Uh, especially large volume applications. Uh, if, if they're like 100,000 hits every, every single day, the cost just adds up, right? Uh, and, and on the other hand, if, if you are working with some consumer-related application where uh, the, the model has to be of really high quality, uh, that it should not be offensive, it should not be hallucinating, it should not lead the customer to incorrect uh, conclusions and so on, there your, your benchmark or your, your uh, target uh, metrics are slightly different, right? So there you are looking for a very high performance uh, models, right? So you, you might be better off to go with uh, uh, APIs like uh, ChatGPT. So that's the distinction that I want to draw, right? So, so your, your use cases and, and the, the, the ROI decides, right, 
whether uh, you can go with uh, open source plus fine tuning or um, uh, publicly available uh, paid APIs. Great, thank you. Zach, did you have anything to add to that or do you think Mavin pretty much summed that one up? I, I mean, yeah, no, it, it was a really interesting perspective. Um, I think maybe different companies may value um, like internal work differently. Sometimes it's hard to explicitly assign, a, oh, we saved or we made this much money because of this um, eternal, internal uh, efficiency that was brought on by by using a, an LLM. And okay, so you maybe it's worth then using some sort of paid API because you were able to quantify how much you know the company made downstream, or maybe you weren't, but it was obvious that it made a big impact. Um, yeah, I guess I have no uh, specific uh, comments except for that. I think there is a lot of really good work going into uh, open source large language models that are very competitive and in some ways better than some of the paid versions. And I think Meta is doing a really incredible job at, at spearheading that. And so we should just, you know, continue to keep our eyes peeled for these new developments and uh, open to incorporating them and using them. Great, yeah, exactly. thank you. So, so yeah, so, some some of the stakeholders that I work with, you know, they always um, uh, say that it is Lama too good, good, as good as uh, ChatGPT, right? Uh, so I, my my response is. Uh, you're comparing apples and oranges, right? ChatGPT is is, a, is an API. Llama 2 is a, is a model. So we don't know what's under ChatGPT. Maybe there are multiple models, ensemble models. Maybe there are multiple uh, god rays on top of models, right? We don't know exactly what's in it. So And also, uh, it, it all boils down to your application, your task, right? Uh, if your task is simple enough, uh, Llama 2 is as good as ChatGPT. If your task is uh, arithmetic and so on, maybe larger models can help you. So it so it's very unfair to compare them. Uh, you should probably look at the metrics based on your own task, right? So variety of tasks, uh, smaller models, open source models, after fine tuning, uh, yield as good results as using commercial APIs. That's that's our experience in the last few months. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Makes sense. That's great. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much. We're gonna gonna have to leave it there. Um, but some really, really, really great, great um comments and topics. So yeah, this is this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I just want to take the opportunity to thank Zach, Chad, and Mavin for providing their insights into the topics. And thank you guys for listening. <laughs>